Thank you, Ben. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, this morning for your word. Thank you uh, for how it points uh, to who you are. And may it point our hearts to a consistent and constant awe that you are God and all that that means. And I pray that as we uh, walk through your word today, that we might hear from you. That we might hear you speaking to us and showing us more of yourself. And so would you just take a moment right where you're seated uh, to ask the Lord uh, to speak to you from his word. Lord, thanks for your faithfulness to reveal yourself to us. May it shape us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to, to worship together, and uh, so glad that you're all here this morning. Uh, imagine if I, uh, if I told you that today um, we're going to have a king, a reigning king in our presence. And so we're like, oh, he's going to be with us. We're going like, to be in the presence of a king. And some of you are like, oh, it's King Charles. Great. I have some questions over the last year. There's been some Netflix series, some books that have come out. Uh, and all of you who are like royal fans are like, now this is all I'm going to think about the entire sermon. So come back to me. Come back to me. It's not King Charles, okay? Uh, it's probably the other king that you're all thinking of. It's King Tanino. He's the king of Tamavara. And I did not make that up, I promise. Uh, he is the king of the smallest kingdom in the world. It is an island that is 1.9 square miles. And there's a whopping 57 people that live in Tamavara, if I said that right. Uh, I know from Wikipedia, it tells everything true, right? And so we have King Charles, who oversees 16 nations. He is a sovereign over 16 nations. And we have King Tonino, whose primary job in Tamavara is to run this restaurant called Datonino. There's 57 people there. They're both kings, but King Tonino has no Netflix special, right? No books. Why? They're both in the seat of royalty, but we know this, right? The idea of a king, their, their sovereignty, the extent of a sovereignty of a king, or the extent of a reign of a king, is in direct proportion to the power, to the authority, to the influence, and the glory of that king. Now, I said this last week as we come to this section of Romans. This section, as we've been walking through the book of Romans for a number of months now, Romans 9 through 11, that it presses us to ask and answer this difficult question. And the question is, how sovereign is God? Is he like a, a little sovereign? Is, does his sovereignty go to here and it stops there? What are the boundaries of his territory? What are the boundaries of his reign? And what we have seen last week, and we're going to see even more today, is that the sovereignty of God has no boundaries, it has no boundaries. Not only is he sovereign over every person who has ever lived, not only is he sovereign over every nation, every piece of land, every king, every leader in the past, in the present, and the nations we've never even heard of that are coming in the future. And not only that, he is, he is sovereign over all things above time and space. As we just heard from the reading in Job, when God asked the question, have you commanded the dawn lately? That God is the one who wakes up the dawn to start the morning. That God is the one who defines where does the land end and where does the sea begin. God is sovereign not only over us now, but he is sovereign over all things, time, and space. And as we looked at last week, as we're going to see some more today, God is sovereign 
and his extent of his sovereignty extends to his divine election in salvation. Now, we're in Romans 9. As we started last week, and if you weren't here with us, I'm going to try to catch this up because it's one continuous thought. But in Romans 9, what we saw last week is we see this in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Like I said last week, pretty easy. We got this, right? You see, the point that Paul has been making over and over and over again, at the end of chapter 8 and in chapter 9, is that our salvation solely depends upon God. It's not dependent upon human will or our exertion, but on God who has mercy. Therefore, there is no end to his sovereignty. It's, it is, there's no realm in which God is not sovereign. He has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, it says. Now, I want to remind us that this perspective that we're reading in Romans 9 is the perspective of salvation from God's perspective, from God's vantage point. Therefore, we are going to struggle to understand it. The idea here is it's, it's from there to here. And we often think of salvation from here to there, right? The, the human perspective. And we are going to see that next week in chapter 10. Paul is going to deal with that and work through that. But in chapter 9, he is talking about God's vantage point from there to here when it comes to salvation. And I shared this last week that one of the, the images, an, an old image from, from about 100 years ago, that was this image of a door. We walk up to a door, and on the door, there's an invitation. And it says, it's from Jesus. It says, I have died for you in your place. You did not deserve this, and yet I paid your debt. Believe and receive the gospel. And we hear this, and we say, yes, I, I, I believe this is so compelling. It's so loving of God to do this for me. I, I see the invitation, and I open the door. And as soon as we walk in the door, on the, on the top of the door, it says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. We said, wait a minute, I, I, thought I, I thought I opened the door. Well, well, yes, but it's also true that God chose you before the foundation of the world. And so we live in this tension when it comes to salvation, and especially when it comes to chapter 9, of this invitation, believe and receive the gospel, and this declaration that God has mercy on whom he has mercy, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And so we said this last week, we are out of our depths here. His ways are not our ways. This is challenging for us to understand. And, and even though it is that, that there's still questions we have. And Paul anticipates a couple of questions that may um, have come up and that may come up for us. Uh, and so, again, this is one thought. So jump back with me to verse 14. He says, one question is, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And the second question that he asks, and, and this is where we start our passage today, verse 19, says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, what, why does God still blame us if it's been determined? Or in other words, why are we held responsible for our condemnation? And both of those questions are getting at sort of this question that is, this doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. 
Is it right? Is it fair? Is it just? And Paul is going to answer this question twice. The, the first answer is quite blunt. In fact, it actually sounds a lot like what Ben read from Job. And what that tells us is there's, there's something about this question that God is answering. And so let me look at verse 20, the, this first answer. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Now, this answer shows us something about the question, because I, I truly believe God welcomes our, our questions and our doubts and our, uh, our struggle and our study to try to understand who he is. It's not that it's as if God does not welcome questions about him, but what's going on here? There's a subtle difference between questioning and accusing. They're, this is what they're doing. They're accusing God. And what is accusing God? What's the subtle difference? Accusing God is putting God on trial based upon our standards. Saying, God, you're not matching up to what I say you should be, which is very prideful at best. And the answer is, who are you? You are the clay. I am the potter. Again, God's response speaks to this vast sovereignty of God. Like we heard in Job, were you there when I designed the earth? Were you giving counsel to me about how to do that? We are the clay, not the potter. Now, this seems very obvious to us, but I think this is a very important perspective, especially on this topic as we look at, as we look at chapter 9. This should lead to an extreme humility. Now, fortunately, he does not keep the answer at this blunt answer. He extends this answer to answer the question. And again, it goes back to his vast sovereignty. The extent of a king's sovereignty is in direct proportion uh, to his influence, his authority, and his glory. And what his first answer to this question, is it right? Is it fair? Is it just? Has to do with his rightful authority. And his first answer is, it is God's prerogative. It's God's prerogative. Look at verse 21. He continues this thought. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Key word in the question is, does God not have the right? Again, pointing to the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty, as we talked about last week, quickly defined, sort of a shorthand definition, is God's right to rule and God always rules rightly. It's his prerogative. If you're a creator of a thing, it's your prerogative to do what you wish with that thing that you created. If you painted a painting, you can put that in a very prominent place in your home so that all can see and say, wow, what a, what a beautiful painting you put. Or you can put that in the bottom of your dog crate and let your dog sleep on it and drool on it and claw it. It's up to you. It's your prerogative to do with that thing that you created. And so this is what God's saying. This is what Paul's saying, is that out of one lump of clay, notice it's one lump of clay, some, some he fashions into honorable use and some he fashions into dishonorable use. It's his prerogative. Now, I know we struggle with this because it's not equal. Right? And there are some situations when it's not helpful to treat people equally. Uh, this is just a metaphor, but follow with me. Imagine that two people go see a doctor. 
they both have massive headaches. And the, and the first doctor, after they meet with this patient, prescribes a steady diet of just ibuprofen on, on a certain amount of times. The second person that comes with this massive headache, the doctor prescribes, he says, uh, you're going to have brain surgery to remove the tumor that is in your head. Now, because of the knowledge known only to the doctor, the doctor chooses to treat them unequally. And that's good and right. And it's the prerogative of the doctor because of what he knows. And so, is it equal? No. What about the question, is it fair? Well, we talked about this last week as well. If fairness is defined by giving people what they deserve, what do we deserve? And as we said last week, if you're reading this in one sitting, just a few minutes ago, you read Romans 1 through 3, and that tells us what is actually fair. What do we actually deserve? What we deserve because of sin is death, condemnation, separation from God. But God has found a way to be both righteous and just, as well as to be merciful and gracious. This is what Romans 1 through 5 is all about. That God, who is the judge, is also the justifier, the one who died in our place, therefore giving us what we did not deserve, what is not fair. Grace his mercy and his grace that he's lavished upon us. And so it's not fair. And so God's prerogative here is to show grace. So the first answer to this question, is it right? Is it just? Is it fair? Is it's God's prerogative. God's the potter. God is God. We are not. The way to put this, it's the godness of God. He is God. Sovereignty extends so far, but we can possibly imagine he is Lord over everything. That's the authority that he brings with being king. It's his prerogative to do as he pleases. But like I said, the extent of a king's sovereignty is in direct proportion to his authority, his power, but also his glory. And that's the second answer that Paul gives for this question. It is all to his glory. And if you've been like, hey, this is easy until now, this part may stretch us. Because this is what Paul says. Look at it with me. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, there's lots of views in Christianity on this passage and what this means. Uh, and lots of views within our church, probably. But I want to tell you what I, share what I think this is saying. Clearly said here. That God chose to make the riches of his glory and grace known through the salvation of some and through the condemnation of others. And that all of this points to his glory. God's intention is his glory. That's what he is about. He is about every nation, every tribe, every created thing, as we sang in the beginning, worshiping him because he alone is worthy of that worship. And so how does he magnify his glory? What does the passage say? First, through his judgment, as a display of his wrath and power. Now, we have no category for perfect, righteous wrath. We just don't. 
in our human minds, with our brokenness of our own, we, we can't really fathom this idea because all we know about wrath is our human uh, frailty in that. But, but this is all part of God's holiness, his power, and his righteousness. And it's right before this, Paul references Pharaoh, that God used Pharaoh for this very purpose to show the vastness of his holiness and his righteousness and his right judgment on sin. And so his glory is on display through his perfect holiness and his righteousness, his just wrath and his judgment. Now, we pressed into this again. We talked about Romans 1 through 3 earlier this uh, last year. And the reality is that all of us know there's a standard. There has to be a standard. We, we talked about bring up any sort of heinous crime that has happened in the last you know, few years. We talked about Nasser. And like just if, if that crime had happened and they, he is sitting there before the judge and the judge says, all of this is true. You have done this, but I'm going to give you a hand slap. There would have been riots in the streets because we know inherently there needs to be justice. There, has to, there is a standard and it must be met. And so we want the judge to do right and to execute perfect justice. We know there's a standard. And so when God executes his wrath, the justice and the holiness of God are lifted up. Now, I said this last week, this is not cold and heartless. Do you remember the beginning of chapter nine? Paul says, I, am, I have unceasing anguish and deep sorrow over this. And I believe God does too. But this is a part of his character. And all the, every created thing will say God is holy. Not just kind of holy, but unswervingly holy, uncompromising in his purity. He is just and he is right. But all for a purpose, he says here. All to emphasize the objects of his mercy to the whole creation. Notice what he says here. Jump down with me to 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So here's what he's saying. This chapter, remember, has been about Israel and only a remnant of those people of Israel, who will not reject Jesus, he says. He, he says that. But if God did not have mercy, he says, all the Jews would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have walked away. They would have rejected God. In other words, without God's merciful choosing, without God's election, no one would be saved. And so he says that God endures with sinners. He endures with us so that all may see his glorious grace for those who he is pouring his grace out on. And this is the second way his glory is on display. God's glory is magnified through his grace to those like us who were objects of wrath. We should have been separated from God. We saw this over and over and over again in Romans 1 through 3. But God, out of his grace and mercy, has plucked us out of the fire and he has shown us that grace and mercy and his son died for us. And so again, this whole chapter has been about Jews, but here we get this shift to Gentiles, to those who are non-Jews. Look at verse 24. 
even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. What is this about? He's saying that now Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, who are not the chosen people of God, have now been adopted, have now been, had, the, had God's love set upon us, and we are now his people, that we have been given this invitation to be his people. Again, the purpose behind all of this is God's glory, that at the same time his justice and his holiness is seen and glorified, the same time his mercy and his grace are on display. And the point is that everyone would say, wow, this is mind-blowing. This is so utterly outside of who we are, but this is God and his glory. And it all has to do with the extent of his sovereignty, the godness of God. Is this right? Is this fair? Is this just? By our own standards, we struggle, but what are the, what's the answer? It's God's divine prerogative, and it's all to his glory. Now, what do we do with this? <laughs> follow it away in things we don't understand, like quantum physics? Like, okay, I'll just follow it away, maybe. Uh, but, but I think there's at least a few responses that are helpful for us. One, I, I think we must approach this with a sincere and holistic recognition that we are not God. We know that. That's obvious. It's the most obvious thing you're going to hear at church. Right? But we're vessels. We're not the potter. I don't know about you. I did not wake up this morning and call the dawn and say, wake up, dawn. I did not set the, where the water would stop. That's what God does. And, you know, I, I don't even remember what I ate yesterday. We, we don't, we can't make the standard. Even if we make the standard, we are not righteous to keep the standard. We, the question of how God, how sovereign is God, is unanswerable to us in our minds. Because we can't even comprehend the realms of his sovereignty. If you read what part of that, we just read a snippet, but Job 38 through 41, it's four chapters of God just saying, here's who I am. And here's how far my sovereignty extends and as you read that, we go, we do not hold God to a human standard. This is not how it works. Now, we're going to be tempted, just like Adam and Eve, to, to, to try to be like God. We'll intellectualize to this place or do these things, just like them. that was the, the core lie of sin, that we will be God. We are not God. We worship God. And when Job, after hearing four chapters of this, what does Job say? I love this. He says, Apparently, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Which is a way of saying, I'm an utter awe of who God is. We bow to the king whose territory has no end whose sovereignty goes into realms that we can't even fully understand. And not only is this a submission to the king of kings, but it's also, I think, 
a trust that God knows what to do with the clay. The potter knows what to do with the clay. He's the potter. And even as we wrestle with this subject, at the end of the day, what we remember is that this sovereign God over all things did not spare his own son because of his great love for us. He gave his own son, God, who, yes, God is the judge, but he's also the justifier, the one who died in our place so that we might receive that mercy and that grace. We trust the potter with the clay, as hard as that may be for us. And we're grateful that he was not fair with us. He did not give us what we deserve. By his grace, he gave us far better. So then, as we read right in the beginning, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I want to reiterate this because he is the potter and we are the clay. All of his promises rest on him. Not on us. Not on our fickle kind of decisions, what we feel this morning or felt yesterday or feel tomorrow. But they rest on him. All the promises of God are secure because he is sovereign. It's his prerogative and all of it is to his glory. And, And I want to close with just reading kind of how this all began. The end of Romans 8 which speaks to this promise that is true. What Paul is trying to say is that this is secure and true because of God's divine sovereignty. So listen to this as we close. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we... We rest in that promise. 
And that promise is not dependent upon us. We rest in the promise that if the God with ultimate and overwhelming sovereignty is for us, who could be against us? We rest on the fact that you show grace to those of us who did not deserve it and do not deserve it. But because you did what you have done, because you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in our place, and on our behalf, these promises are all true and they're secure. I am sure, like Paul says, that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I pray that today as we wrestle with this difficult topic that we would have a sincere and, and, and honest approach to let God be God. Stop trying to control, stop trying to to put ourselves on the throne of our lives, to crown ourselves, but to do what is already true, as we sang, to crown you Lord of our hearts. And Lord, that we might trust you because you're the potter and we're the clay. That might lead us not to a place of accusing you, but to trust. The proper response of submission and bowing and also a deep trust and faith that you know what to do with the clay. And so we entrust it to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.